Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 49, 7th C and John Wick. During the course of the first year of this podcast, we've covered medieval fantasy, cyberpunk, space adventures, hell, we've even talked about role-playing games where you play cartoon characters. But for all of that, the one thing we haven't really gotten into yet is that always popular genre of pirates and high seas adventures. Well, today we're going to cross that off our list by covering the excellent game Seventh Sea, then we'll do a bio on its creator, John Wick. I know, you got excited there for a minute when I said John Wick. You probably thought I was talking about a game based on the uber-popular Keanu Reeves character. Sorry about that. I should note, though, that the writer and creator named John Wick is a very interesting fellow and has done some pretty diverse stuff in his career. We'll dig deeper into that in a little while. First, let's get the tour bus cranked up and discuss the topic that brought you here today. Seventh Sea. Seventh Sea, which was promoted as a swashbuckling and sorcery tabletop role-playing game, was designed by John Wick, Kevin Wilson, and Jennifer Wick, and released to the world by Alderac Entertainment Group in 1999. We've mentioned Alderac Entertainment Group previously, by the way, as it's the company originally founded in part by Jolly Blackburn, and we discussed Jolly in his own episode a while back. Seventh Sea's setting is the world of Thea, which is the creator's own version of 17th century Earth. We'll also discuss Thea in greater detail in just a few minutes, so be patient. Seventh Sea came out of the gate hot. It won the Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Game of 1999 and wound up with a dozen or so supplements printed for it over the course of its lifetime, including books for most of the nations of Thea, the various secret societies in the world, and a number of adventures for your swashbucklers to engage in. In this initial form, Seventh Sea was a D10 system with the Roll and Keep mechanism in place, for those of you who might not remember what that is, a roll and keep means you roll a certain number of dice, determined by your character stats, and keep a number determined by the GM for the particular task. There's also a target number for the dice to hit, and that's also determined by the GM. We've discussed that system before, and I'm sure we'll give it more time again in the future, but for now, you get it well enough to understand the basics of the first edition of 7th C. By 2001, 7th Sea had become so popular that Studio G released a couple of comic books based on the game, 7th Sea Absolution and 7th Sea Prelude to Ruin. Needless to say, I'd lay good money, those aren't easy to find, and would fetch you a nice price if you would happen to have one of them. By 2004, Alderac had gotten the D20 fever and switched the majority of the games they published to that system. 7th C was no exception, and the game got a rebranding as well, now called Swashbuckling Adventures. However, if you'll remember back to our D20 system episode, 2004 wasn't the best time to decide to make the change to the D20 system, as the glut of D20 games on the market had been causing a backlash to the point that most companies had decided it just wasn't worth it to keep pumping out product for the system. The backlash towards D20 was so severe that Swashbuckling Adventures saw the sales for the three core rulebooks for the system sell so poorly, thereby causing Alderac to have to slightly adjust their course. 
The adjustment was that from about 2005 until they stopped printing books for 7th C, the majority of the products that were released were dual rule books, which meant they supported both the D20 system and the D10 roll and keep. Alderac Entertainment Group continued to crank out materials for 7th C through the mid-20-teens, and their materials continued to bring the action of Thea up to date with what was happening across the various titles in the line. However, it's also been noted by numerous sources that some of these later releases changed the feel of 7th C from a swashbuckling piratey game into something more Lovecraftian in nature, and a large majority of 7th C fans didn't care for those changes very much. The sales numbers, by the way, proved that out as the successive books in the line continued to drop their total sales numbers until Alderac decided to stop publishing new titles with the release of Rapier's Edge. In 2015, Alderac decided to back out of 7th C. They basically transferred the rights to the game to John Wick's new company, John Wick Presents. While Alderac did retain some rights to produce certain products, those products have never been formally named and therefore haven't been officially released. John Wick's first big move once he acquired the rights to his creation was to announce a Kickstarter for the second edition of the game. He was joined in this production by Michael Curry, Rob Justice, and Mark Diaz Truman. Announced on March 16, 2016, the campaign was very successful and led to the official release of the edition in June of that same year. In late June of 2016, Wick decided to give the fans of 7th Sea the opportunity to self-publish their own materials for the setting and set up the 7th Sea Explorer Society on DriveThruRPG to allow for it. Needless to say, both of these decisions turned out to be wise ones, as the second edition of the game was pretty well reviewed, and fans of the game relished the opportunity to not only be able to publish their own materials for the game and system, but allow them to be quasi-officially recognized by the publisher. By this point, John Wick Presents appeared to be able to do no wrong. Keeping that in mind, John Wick decided to launch another Kickstarter campaign. This time, he wanted to publish 7th C Katai, which would be the East Asian-flavored companion to 7th C. That campaign launched on November 12, 2017, and was about as successful as the previous campaign had been. However, this success led to the ultimate downfall of John Wick Presents. How could that have happened? Basically, the two Kickstarters in about a year were so popular, and so many of the stretch goals were hit, the company just couldn't keep up. That meant that unfulfilled orders were piling up, and the company was under pressure to meet the promises they'd made to their backers. John Wick was forced out of necessity to lay off the entirety of his company, and that would have been the end of the story. Except, 7C is just too damn good of a game. Chaosium stepped up, acquired all of the rights to 7th C that John Wick Presents had, then cranked up production on the second edition to fulfill all of the Kickstarter promises and to begin production on more books in the line. So the story for 7th C has a happy ending. To this point, anyway. As of this recording, nine books have been published in the second edition line, with the most recent being Secret Societies in 2020. Second edition brought some adjustments to the overall game, but we'll break that down further in a little bit. Before we break down the second edition of 7th C, let's take a minute to look at the fantasy world that hosts the game. Thea consists of nine nations, all based on real-world nations of roughly the 17th century. Avalon can trace its inspiration to both Elizabethan England and the Arthurian legends. 
Let's be honest here. It's not the first time a game has tried to tie these two elements together. But in the case of 7th C, many argue it's among, if not the, best attempt. Queen Elaine is the ruler of the Three Kingdoms, which are Avalon, Innismore, and the Highland Marches, and rules from the mystical city of Carleon, losing the symbol of Graal to represent her unified rule. Castile is the Spanish equivalent in Seventh Sea. It also happens to be the stronghold of the Vatican Church, and I'm sure you can guess what that's based on. It should be noted that the Vatican is more Gnostic than Catholic, and I'm sure that was to avoid issues with the Catholic Church. The masked El Vago fights against the injustice of the Inquisition in Castile, because, as you well know, nobody expects the Castilian Inquisition. Yeah, I know. I figured out a way to work that joke in again this week. Still as bad as last week. Okay, moving on. Aizen, which consists of seven kingdoms, is the equivalent of the European nation-states that would eventually become Germany. Remember, kids, Germany has only existed in its present state for about 150 years, give or take a few years. Much as in reality, the seven kingdoms of Aizen were once unified as a riff on the Holy Roman Empire, but have since gone through a civil war, much like the Thirty Years' War, and are currently very divided. Montaigne is the French equivalent in Seventh Sea. Years ago, in game time anyway, it was the home to the Sun King, Léon Alexandre de Montaigne. But much like a very similar French king, his empire fell due to decadence and mismanagement, with a Seventh Sea French Revolution equivalent thrown in, and it's now the First Republic in Thea. Yasura has a Catherine the Great, much like the Russia it's based on, her predecessor, Gaius, who is supposed to be very much like Ivan the Terrible, refused to allow the nation to modernize. Catherine doesn't seem to have that problem, and therefore the frozen lands of Yasura are on the brink of becoming modernized. Vendel is the analog of the Dutch and Scandinavian cultures. At present in the game, there's a bit of a thing going on between the merchant guilds and the Vestin Manganjar. I know I screwed that up, but I tried. They're the seventh sea version of Vikings. Yep, we've got pirates and Vikings in this game. Hell yeah. Vadacci. If my pronunciation of the name didn't give it away, it's the analog of the Italian city-states of the real 17th century Earth. The various merchant princes of Vadacci are playing what Seventh Sea calls the Great Game. Cathay is Thea's China and Asian equivalent, at least until the Kitai supplement is finally released. Cathay is separated from the rest of the world by the mysterious Wall of Fire. That means you won't be going to do your thing in Cathay during this game, folks. Sorry about that. And remember, I'm just the messenger here. Finally, we have the Crescent Empire. Should be obvious what this represents, but let's go ahead and say it anyway. Everything that would be Middle Eastern in the 17th century on Earth. So when you look at the nations of Thea, there's a lot of intrigue going on there. And it's intrigue that can and will play into your game. Speaking of intrigue to play into your game, Seventh Sea has a number of secret societies that are doing their thing across the globe. Let's take a look at those groups and I'll explain why in a few minutes. The Knights of the Rosen Cross are, as one writer noted, a mixture of the Knights Templar with the Rosicrucians and a touch of the Masons. Google those if you're not 100% sure just how friggin' cool that would be to play. The Knights are trying to inspire the populace of Thea with their 
heroic deeds. Next up, we've got Die Kritzer, known as the Black Crosses. They are the successors to the Teutonic Knights who fought in the Crusades. Their current goal is to fight a shadow war against an alien threat. Are they real aliens, or is there something else going on here? You're going to have to play to find out. The Explorers Society are just that, archaeologists and explorers who are examining the ancient Simoth cultures that predate mankind. For the record, somebody on Wikipedia called them budding Indiana Jones types. All right. The Invisible College is based on what the real world would come to know as the Royal Society. Again, you're going to want to throw that in your Google machine. The, uh, the TLDR on this is that the Royal Society was basically a group of scholars working in secret during the Inquisition to ensure that knowledge the church wanted to destroy was maintained for future generations to be able to absorb. It's the same idea in 7th C. Los Vagos are, for those of you who know Spanish and figured it out already, the followers of El Vago. For the record, El Vago is basically Zorro, but of course they couldn't call him that in 7th C without a copyright infringement suit. So El Vago is out there battling the Inquisition and his followers do the same. The Ralasciare. Well, the term shit disturbers comes to mind when I think of these folks. They are small bands of anarchists and troublemakers. And what the GM knows, but nobody else would, they are way older and much better organized than anyone knows or believes. Sophia's Daughters. These are the secret guardians of Thea. They've been blessed with the powers of foresight and manipulation. And if that's not some Gandalf mixed with Yoda and blended on high speed kind of stuff, I'm not quite sure what's going to be. Novus Ordum Mundi. That sounds like an evil fraternity, it's because it is. I have to again point out that somebody on Wikipedia actually called it the Evil Overlord Club. I mean, they're not wrong. It is some of the worst villains of Thean society, and they have been stirring the pot for a very long time. But Evil Overlord Club? <sighs> Last up is the Rye Grin. That's Rye as in R-Y-E. This group has a number of analogs in real life, as their goal is to save innocents from the guillotine during the Montaigne Revolution. Like I said, there were a number of groups in revolutionary France that did the same thing, and again, you can Google search and read a lot more about them. So, we've looked at the nations and the secret societies of Seventh Sea. We don't usually do that in breakdowns of games, so I'm sure you're asking yourself, why now? We did all of that as a lead into the gameplay itself, and we did that because there's one very important thing you need to understand about playing 7th C. At its very best, 7th C is all about the story. Yeah, I know, all tabletop role-playing games claim to be all about the story, but D&D can turn into a fighting and stealing game if that's what the players prefer. And Shadowrun and even Deadlands can also turn into non-roleplay games if that's the preference of the players and the GM. 7th C, on the other hand, is truly about telling the story. I'm going to say this up front. If you decide to play 7th C, you better be ready to roleplay. If you're not, you're probably not going to have a lot of fun playing the game. On the other hand, if roleplay is your thing, then this is definitely the game for you. But you need a character to play the game, so let's break the system down just a little bit. For the record, I'm using the 2nd edition 7C rules for this, primarily because I couldn't find my 1st edition 7C book in the hoarder's clutter that is my basement. But I was able to download, for free, a copy of the Quick Start rules for 2nd edition. 
and you can too. Head over to Chaosium's website at chaosium.com. That's C-H-A-O-S-I-U-M.com. And they've got a free PDF of the Quick Start as well as a free PDF of a character sheet that you can download. So, characters in 7C have five traits. Brawn, Finesse, Resolve, Wits, and Panache. As you can see, there's no equivalent to intelligence in this system, and that's okay, because it's more about the ability to think on your feet and make capital D dramatic decisions. And if you've ever had a friend ask you to hold my beer, you know intelligence had nothing to do with the decision they've just made. The skill set for 7C also plays the same theme. Aim, athletics, brawl, convince, empathy, hide, intimidate, perform, ride, sailing, scholarship, tempt, theft, warfare, and weaponry. Again, not a lot of smarts in there, though the fact that scholarship exists is promising. Now, I'd love to be able to tell you how you put your points into these areas, but unfortunately the quick start rules don't include that. Instead, they give you pre-generated characters to use to play the adventure included. So I suppose I'll have to pony up for the full rule book, or finally find my first edition book and do a revisit of this episode somewhere down the line. One thing the rules do take time to point out is the concept of your character taking risks. Again, we're talking about storytelling here, so there needs to be some drama, and 7th C was built on drama. Think about that for a minute. We've all seen those pirate swashbuckling movies over the years. Depending on your age, the movies are probably a bit different, but they all have one thing in common. The heroes do things that would be considered dramatic to those watching. Sometimes they'd also be called stupid, but they're still dramatic nonetheless. There's an entire system built into the game for resolving these dramatic moments, and performing well on them not only allows for success, but also allows for success with flair. And if the movie Waiting taught us nothing else, it's all about the right amount of flair. Nobody? Okay then, moving on. Action does take place in 7th C. I mean, you can't have swashbuckling pirates or swashbuckling heroic types, if that's a bit more your style, and not have some outstanding action going on. You can have sword fights or brawls, or you could just have those uber-cool sequences where folks are swinging from place to place or trying to tumble through a group of bad guys to make the super-sweet move that saves the day. Some of that would be taking risks, but most of that is action, and the system is rather easy to follow. Now, I've done all this talking about the things that can be done. What happens if the character fails? Consequences, that's what. Consequences can lead to wounds, depending on what the character failed at, and wounds require healing. That being said, healing is not an easy thing, so it would behoove characters to think carefully about what they're about to attempt before they do it. This isn't like D&D, where the cleric can cast a healing spell on you and you can just continue on with your day like nothing happened. You get hurt in 7th C, and it can very easily knock you out of action for a decent amount of time, if not kill your character. Again, this is more about role-playing and doing cool stuff that isn't getting into sword fights, but that'll probably happen from time to time anyway, so be prepared. Dramatic sequences are also given their own section of rules, as, again, it's all about telling the story. Okay, by now I know you figured out why I made the point about 7C being all about the story. I mean, dramatic sequences, taking risks, consequences, they're all designed to have the players tell the story. Or, like my friend Jim did in his long-running D&D game many years ago, help the author finish writing their story. Same idea, slightly different methodologies. 
If this even remotely sounds like fun, grab a free copy of the Quick Start Rules and check them out for yourself. Again, the website is chaosium.com. Reviews for second edition are, for the most part, positive. The number one complaint I've seen in the reviews I've read is that the mechanics have been tweaked just enough that hardcore fans of the first edition don't really seem to like them. Now, they don't trash the game overall, but most have just commented that they'll either be returning to the first edition rules or cobbling in the rules from first edition they prefer over the second edition ones and leaving the rest. Without having the first edition rules in front of me to compare to, I'm going to stay out of that argument for the moment. So, with our look at 7th C complete for the moment, let's dig into the background of its creator, John Wick. I had a lot of difficulty in digging up info about John's early days, so we're going to pick up our look at John in 1995. That year, he was working as a freelance writer and living in Southern California. By chance, he'd been submitting articles to Shaddis Magazine, which you'll remember from our Jolly Blackburn episode, and drew the attention of DJ Trindle, who was the assistant editor of the magazine at that time. Trindle was so impressed with John's work that he hired him as a staff writer for Shaddis Magazine. Now, as you'll remember from our discussion of Shaddis, it was owned and operated by Alderac Entertainment Group, and we mentioned that they're the original publisher of 7th Sea, but um, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Shortly after joining AEG, John was placed with the group that developed the Legend of the Five Rings collectible card game. His official title was Continuity Editor, and for those who don't know what that role would be, he was in charge of making sure the game's characters and plot details were consistent. Thus, continuity. John oversaw continuity for the Emerald, Obsidian, and Jade editions of the game, and that includes the Shadowlands, Forbidden Knowledge, Anvil of Despair, Crimson and Jade, and Time of the Void expansions. He was also the primary source for storyline, flavor text, and characters for the Scorpion Coup set. John also led the design team that created the L5R role-playing game in 1997. Now, we are definitely going to do a deep dive on L5R in a future episode because that is a very interesting game. Shortly after the release of the L5R role-playing game, John left that design team to begin creation of 7th C. Now, one thing I left out of the narrative for 7th C is that when John and Jennifer Wick first proposed the game... It was supposed to be self-contained, which basically means that all of the rules you'd ever need to play the game would have been in one book. Obviously, that didn't happen, but that's also not a bad thing, since 7th Sea took off like wildfire, as we just finished talking about a few minutes ago. For those keeping score at home, John left AEG right after he finished his work on the Avalon Sourcebook, because he was looking for another challenge. We detailed his further adventures with 7C earlier in this episode, so we're not going to get back into him at this point. John moved on to Totally Games, where he helped design and develop an Xbox launch title, then wrote, designed, and developed Orc World. Orc World is what is known as a reverse fantasy game. In Orc World, you play an orc. They're the heroes of this world, and the villains, or monsters if you want to see it that way, are humans, dwarves, and elves. Orc World released in 2000 and picked up an Origins Award nomination for Best Game Fiction. At some point during all of this, John had moved to San Francisco for work. He returned to LLA and joined Neopets. You remember Neopets? His primary job was to write stories for the Neopedia. He helped develop the Neopets collectible card game also, which makes sense with his history at developing collectible card games. 
Speaking of collectible card games, John also contributed to a product from Upper Deck that many of you have probably heard of, the Versus System collectible card game. Marvel and DC both had products in this line, and it sold a ton of copies. Around 2004, John hooked up with his friend Jared Sorensen to start the Wicked Dead Brewing Company, which, despite the name, was a publishing company, not a brewery. The brand has published more than a dozen different role-playing games, board games, and books over the years. Among them, Enemy Gods in 2004 and Cat in 2006. In 2007, John announced on his live journal that he was returning to what he called big game design. The game in question was Houses of the Blooded, which focuses on the Ven, which are a race of magically created humanoids, and the world of Shanri. For the record, both the Ven and Shanri appeared in his game Enemy Gods. The game released at the 2008 Origins Game Fair, and the limited edition version sold out in a single week. He also released a soundtrack for his game, focusing on what he called Ven Blood Opera. At one time, the soundtrack was available on the official game website, but I was unable to find the site to offer up the link for your listening pleasure. So if you've got the soundtrack, hit me up and we'll post a piece or two somewhere for everybody else to be able to check out. John also kept an open log of his game design on his live journal. The idea was for fans of the game to get insight into what the creator was thinking and allow for them to take the journey along with him. In 2009, John cranked up another new company, John Wick Presents. His new company entered into a partnership with Cubicle 7, whom we've also discussed before, and offered up a reissue of Houses of the Blood as their first release. As we mentioned earlier, John Wick Presents was also where the second edition of Seventh Sea was born. We also mentioned earlier that once John Wick Presents was closed, John moved to Chaosium to continue creating Seventh Sea, as well as other products for the role-playing masses. Here's a couple of interesting things about John Wick, since I've got the time. In November of 2005, he became a Freemason, and he's a Master Mason out of the Liberal Arts Lodge in Los Angeles. He was also a founding member of and a drummer for the band The Awful Lot. So, as we've seen, John Wick is a creator who seems to constantly have his fingers in a lot of different pies, which is not only a good thing for him, but also for those who've enjoyed his various creations over the years. And with that we come to the end of today's tour. Next week, we're going to discuss a couple of D&D settings that have been in the gaming news over the past couple of weeks, Dragonlance and Spelljammer. Programming note. So next week is episode 50, which means we're that much closer to our one-year anniversary. Episode 51 is going to be on D&D Beyond, since that's also been in the news recently. And then episode 52, which will close out our first year of existence as a podcast, will be something special. I don't want to get too far into it at the moment, but I will give you this. We're going to do our very first revisit, and it's a revisit I've been wanting to do for almost a year. If you've been with us this whole time, I probably just gave away the subject. But if not, you'll find out what we're going to do at the end of episode 51. I'd also like to encourage you to check out my other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. We do things a little bit differently over there, as I take one game system, build a setting, create a character or two to show you how to create characters, then create the campaign for you, with your help if you'd like to participate. Oh, and I do avoid the use of profanity, so you can listen to that with the kids. 
For our first game, we're covering Deadlands Classic. And since I'm actually running the game we're building, we're also going to get feedback on how our creation is working out, since I'll be providing the after-game report for each of my game sessions. We haven't actually gotten to the first one of those yet. This week's episode is our GM's game, where I go over some of the more important things for the GM to utilize when running the game. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can head over to rss.com and search for the show. Look, I know I say this a lot, but I have to thank you for supporting our show for nearly an entire year. My whole goal for this show was to just have one listener that wasn't either a family member or a very close friend of mine. And thanks to this show, there are people all over the world who listen to me ramble on on a weekly basis. I, I can't begin to express how that makes me feel, and thank you just isn't sufficient. So maybe I need to pick up another language so I can find the right words. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. You can follow us on Facebook, Bad GM Productions, Twitter, at Bad GMP, YouTube, Bad GM Productions. We have a Twitch channel, Bad GM. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. The website's almost done, so bookmark badgmproductions.com. When we have that up, you'll be able to get both podcasts in one place. At least that's the plan. And I know that all the new sites aren't up and running properly just yet. We are a two-humanoid team at Bad GM Productions, and we're both trying to manage full-time jobs and a whole lot of other stuff. But your patience during this process has been appreciated, and while things are being sorted out, we're leaving all of the role-playing history stuff up and open for use, so feel free to keep doing all of that through there for now. Is that all the announcements? Right then... Next week, we deep dive Dragonlance and Spelljammer. This should help to explain to some of you why the recent Spelljammer announcement is such a big damn deal. Join us next week and find out. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis and your role-playing history.